0: reading of our scripture. We have a couple of passages today. First is from 1 Timothy 3 verses 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. And also from the book of Acts, chapter 19, verses 23 through 34. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus... When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who the Jews, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew... For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! You may be seated.
1: It's... Will's voice that I use when I read in my head. (laughs) Thank you, Will. So, in that reading there from Acts 19, Paul and his companions are in Ephesus. And these Ephesian workmen, led by this guy named Demetrius, are upset because Paul and his companions are saying that the only true God is the god that they're proclaiming. And so their goddess, Artemis, is in danger of not being worshipped, which they weren't really that worried about the worship of Artemis. They were worship, they were worried about losing their financial gain from making these little silver shrines and things like that. But there in Ephesus, they had a temple to Artemis. There's different... Stories you hear about their view of what, where Artemis came from. And they say that uh, she fell from the sky and landed in Ephesus. And that's where she made her home. Some people say she was born in Ephesus. But the Ephesians cared greatly about Artemis. She was their god. Their goddess, I guess you could say. And they built a magnificent temple there in Ephesus to honor Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So when Paul got there and this started happening, I love this. They recognized that this guy, Alexander, was a Jew and for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it says some of them didn't even know why they were there, but hey, this is what's going on, so let's play, right? Well, today, Paul has something to say about that. Here at the end of the third chapter, the very middle of the book, so many times that middle is pivotal in understanding Paul's purpose in writing. And today, we reach that pinnacle, we reach that point, and we see Paul's main point. In writing to Timothy, here in 1 Timothy. Timothy, who had been left in Ephesus to set some things right, Paul's going to bring to the fore the most important thing that he wants him to know. And so as we end the third chapter and prepare to go into the last three chapters, we have this pivotal sentence, a few sentences, this pivotal passage that we're going to look at today. So it starts there in verse 14. Paul says to Timothy... I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that dot dot dot. We're just going to stop actually start with I hope to come to you soon. Okay? So Paul previously in this in this book has been directing Timothy on the work that Timothy needed to do in order to help bring some corrective instruction to the church at Ephesus. And we can see, we kind of get the feel and the tone here, and we see in other passages that Timothy has a tendency to be a little bit more reserved. Not backward, not shy, but just eh, not as forward as, say, Paul, right? And Paul knows this, and so after some pointed directions and commands in these first three chapters, it seems like he's trying to reassure Timothy that Timothy, you're not in this all alone. I hope to come to you soon, Paul says. And obviously from that statement, it's clear that Paul has gone, has been gone a while since leaving Timothy there in Ephesus. And we saw in, in 1 Timothy 1.3, he told him to remain there. He told Timothy to remain in Ephesus. And here he says, I hope to come to you soon. And I love the connection here. I love Paul's heart for his young disciple who's in a tough situation tasked with some really tough tasks in this veering church. You might have to hand some people over to Satan, Timothy. You're going to have to be strong. You're going to have to discipline. You're going to have to crack the whip of sound doctrine. And Paul reassures him here, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, which I'm sure Timothy was glad to hear. But he says, I'm writing these things to you so that, verse 15... It's not next on here, I don't know. Me and this thing don't get along. I hope to come to you soon, that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So he's right in saying, I hope to come to you soon, but if I delay... hmm." Paul addresses the possibility that he may not be able to come soon. He may be delayed. And a cursory reading of Paul's life and travel shows that he was held up many times for a variety of reasons on a variety of occasions. Uh, There's a list, uh, the catalog, the classic catalog is found there in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 29. Let me read that. Thank you. Are they servants of Christ? Paul says, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And that doesn't mean he was smoking something, it means that they threw rocks at him, just so you know. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, danger, danger, danger. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I'm not weak. Who's made to fall? And I'm not indignant. So yeah, Paul had a tendency to be delayed. So, he says, if I am delayed, nudge, nudge, hint, hint. uh, I want you to know something, Timothy. I'm writing these things to you so that... Quickly, what are these things? Put simply, these things seems to mean the letter overall. If I'm delayed, I'm writing this letter to deliver some vital information to you, Timothy. And the literal wording is, since I can't come soon, I wrote these things. Whether I make it there or not, you, Timothy, should still know these things that are written in this letter, this epistle that I'm writing to you. And what is so vital that Paul thinks Timothy should know? Well, it's what we've been saying is the main thrust, the main theme of this whole book here in verse 15, that you may know, Timothy, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, of course, this statement is loaded with importance, and there's tons of things to consider here. First off, Paul speaks directly to Timothy here. You may know. You, Timothy, that you may know how Timothy himself, in particular, you might know how one, and note that one is anyone, everyone it seems, but he's speaking specifically to Timothy. Paul deems it necessary that Timothy knows himself, particularly how everyone generally should do what he's about to describe. I want you to know, Timothy, because you've got to know so that other people can know. And that something that he needs to know is described as how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, we'll elaborate on this household of God in just a few. But the emphasis right now is on what? It's on behavior. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. That's what we do, right? Right? So the emphasis here is on behavior and particularly behavior within the household of God. Timothy, I want you to know how to behave. And Timothy, I want you to know how everyone should behave. And if you know, you can teach others. Now, I couldn't not include this Greek word definition for behave. I think we've got it up there. Go to the next slide. It is... Anastrepho. Anastrepho. Eleven times it occurs. Return, uh, have conversation, live, abide, overthrow, behave oneself, be used, and pass once. Now watch these definitions. To turn upside down. To overturn. To turn back. To turn hither and thither. And that's really why I include this definition because I wanted to say hither and thither. To turn hither and thither. To turn oneself about, to sojourn or dwell in a place. Metaphorically, to conduct oneself or behave oneself. Now, it's really pretty clear what this word means here in Paul's statement to Timothy. He's referring to behaving, how one ought to conduct himself. But I love those definitions 2 and 3 here. To turn back, to turn hither and thither. And I won't say it again, but three times. To turn oneself about, to sojourn or dwell in a place. And it gives a picture of living actively, even including turning and returning when necessary. So as we conduct ourselves, as we behave in the household of God, it's going to, it's going to call for a lot of turning and returning. Turning and returning. Turning and returning. Why? Why? Because we're sinners, right? And the church is made up of a bunch of sinners. And so how should one behave? Turn and return, turn and return, turn and return. It gives a picture of living actively. Timothy, if I can't get to where you are soon, and I probably won't, I want you to know how to sojourn. I want you to know how to turn and return and turn and return when necessary and it will be necessary and thus conduct yourself in the household of God. There's going to have to be turning and returning in your behavior, in your conduct and toward the doctrine over and over and over and over again. There in the household of God. And I want you to know how to do that, Timothy, hence this letter. And it's all the more important because it's not about living in Ephesus. He didn't say how to conduct yourself there in Ephesus. It's about how you're doing all this. Where? In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. What an incredible statement. We've already seen that Timothy is there in Ephesus to set things right in the church there. But now the spotlight shines brightly on what that church is. And Paul gives us three definitions or three explanations. He says it's the household of God, the church of the living God, and a pillar and buttress of the truth. And we could stay there for a few months and and not plumb the depths of it. So much good stuff in those three statements. First, Paul calls the assembly of the believers the household of God. We say all the time that the church is not a building, just like a home's not a building. A house is a building, a home is where you live and where your family is, right? In the same way, God's assembly is not a building. This is not the church. This is not the house of God. We are. We are the church. We are the household of God. The household of God is the family of God. We are God's children. He is our Father. And the church is the household of God. The word for household is oikos, like the yogurt. And it means one's settled abode. And it refers to the inmates of a house, all the persons forming one family. And this is who we are. Now now stop and breathe that in for a second. The church, universal, all through time, in every place, ever, is the household of God. And we're a picture of that, a small picture of that here in our local assembly. And God has seen fit to bring people here and have us assemble and sojourn together as the family of God. Us being His household. Us being God's household. And that's who we are. And Paul wants Timothy to know how to conduct himself, how to help others conduct themselves in this household. In this family, uh, y'all have probably seen those signs that they sell now. In this house, we blank, 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 blank. We live, laugh, love, we forgive, blah, 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 blah. Well, Paul's saying in this household, this is what we're going to do. I don't mean to make light of that if you've got one of those in your house. We don't, and don't buy us one. But but if you got one, we're good with it, okay? You can buy us one if you want. I don't care. <laughs> in this household, we burn pizza because we forget about Which is not good. That, that's one of the mortal sins that our Roman Catholic friends would say. Um, in this household, in this family. Next, Paul says this household of God is the church of the living God. The living God's church is how we would see that literally translated from the Greek. The living God's church. That word church is so important in the New Testament. And it's so important that we understand what that word church means. It's the word ecclesia. Ecclesia, some would pronounce it. I don't know what's right. And it means a called out assembly. One definition puts it this way. In a Christian sense, an assembly of Christians gathered for worship in a religious meeting, a company of Christians or of those who, hoping for eternal salvation through Jesus Christ, observe their own religious rites, hold their own religious meetings, and manage their own affairs according to the regulations prescribed for the body for order's sake. The idea is that this group has been called out of one place to assemble together for a particular purpose. And who's done the calling? God did. Just like Lazarus laying in the tomb and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. God, with his mighty, omnipotent voices, church, come forth. Come out of her midst. Be separate and distinct. I'm calling you out of the world to assemble for my glory's sake. This thing called church is holy. This group of called out people who worship as a body was called out by God himself. The living God called these people into this assembly. And they and we are his. The living God's church. And he is alive. And finally, Paul calls this church a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, I'm like, what? Is what? Let's settle in here for a second. First, let's figure out what a pillar and a buttress are. I think we're okay with pillar, right? It's a column that holds up a roof or a wall. Roof. Roof or a wall. Without the pillar, what is above it falls down structurally. Okay, so hold on to that thought. The church is the support of what? The pillar and buttress of the truth. The church holds up the truth like a pillar. Now, buttress is a little bit different. We consult Wikipedia to get a definition for buttress, and they tell us, An architectural structure built against or projecting from a wall which serves to support or reinforce the wall. Buttresses are fairly common on more ancient buildings as a means of providing support to act against the lateral forces arising out of the roof structures that lack adequate bracing. Now I got a picture of one of my favorite kinds of buttress. This is a flying buttress which means it's coming out of the wall. Sometimes they're just horizontal, pressing up against it. They've got a little support at the bottom that pushes it so that the wall can't fall this way. This is a flying buttress. It's separate from the building, and it's still propping up, making sure that that wall doesn't fall in the direction that it's pressing against. So a pillar supports a structure vertically, and a buttress supports it horizontally. Now let's explore this, because the church, Paul says here, is a pillar And buttress of the truth. The church holds up the truth. And the church keeps the truth sound laterally. Keeps it from falling down this way. Ain't going to fall this way. Ain't going to fall this way. Which means it ain't going to fall. Now what's that mean? Listen church called out assembly, the living God's church. It means that as the church, we individually and collectively are those who take the truth of God, the truth of the gospel, and we hold it up and we support it from all angles in the world against attacks, against entropy, against anything that might make that truth susceptible to falling. God entrusts the truth to us. And we are to be those who show that truth to be reliable. Sometimes we just need to cover our mouths. Because this is holy. This is not stories about David and Goliath and. Smiling Noah on an ark. Or baby Jesus in a manger. All those things are true. But the truth about God has been entrusted to us. Nothing else, no one else will support it. Everything else, everyone else is attacking it. And we as the pillars, we as the buttresses support that truth. Guaranteeing. That it will not fall. Wow. God entrusts the truth to us. And we are to be those who show it to be reliable. And it's interesting that Paul uses this analogy, this metaphor, because these Ephesians would know something of pillars and buttresses because of that temple that they had there to Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, look at her temple. Now place yourself there. As they looked at this, this prominent feature of the city of Ephesus, they see this temple of Artemis and they're like, She's so great. Look at her temple. Now hold on to that thought. Of that temple of Artemis in in, in Ephesus, John MacArthur describes it this way. It was an incredible piece of architecture. Huge, massive, buttresses, bulwarking, bulwarking foundations laid on the bottom of it. And rising up to support the roof were 127 pillars supporting the tremendously heavy structure of the roof. The pillars were made of solid marble, studded with jewels, and overlaid with gold. Each of those pillars was a gift from a king and represented the nobility of the one who gave the pillar. It was a tribute to the one it represented. The foundations, the word they use basically means the bulwark, the buttressing. The foundation and the pillar held up that whole structure. End of quote. Now, place yourself, church, within this thought. 127 pillars made of solid marble, studded with jewels, overlaid with gold. Each of those pillars was a gift from a king and represented the nobility of the one who gave the pillar, it was a tribute to the one it represented. Who are those pillars? We are. In the temple of the living God, in the household of God, we are those pillars. A gift from a king that represents the nobility of the one who gave the pillar. Mm. You, me... Us, as the church, we are the foundation and the pillar that holds up the whole structure. Now make no mistake, God Himself has delivered His truth. It's His truth. And as His church has called out assembly, we hold up His truth. And God is the one who holds the whole structure together. And we are ultimately supported and held up by Him so that we can support and hold up what He has entrusted to us. Thankfully, He upholds us, right? Right? Our job, our goal, our calling is to take God's truth and show it to be true by who we are and what we do. That rhymed. And of course, the message of this truth is found where? Where do we find the truth that we're supposed to uphold? It's in the Bible. It's in God's Word. So we are to be firm, vocal, blatantly, clearly focused on the truth of God's Word. It's truth, it's inerrancy, it's veracity, it's sufficiency, and it's goodness. MacArthur again says it this way, Whatever your role, ministry, gifting, place in the body, your role is to hold up the truth. All battles are to be fought to uphold the inerrancy and sufficiency of the Bible, end of quote. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're a believer. You've had that born-again experience. But you've got a problem with the Bible. If we have a problem with the Bible, individually or collectively, we have foundational, irreparable problems as the church. We are the pillar and buttress of the truth of God and His Word. And it is a high, holy calling. And more on that later. But for now, let's look at this marvelous last verse of our passage in the chapter. Verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now note the structure there. You might see that that's kind of structured in your Bible up here differently. That means that because of the meter of it, because of the way it's set up, it was probably either a chorus, a poem, a song that was commonly repeated. And what a song it is. I love that Paul starts this verse with, Great, indeed. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul says, Pff, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians? Your Artemis is great? Well, great indeed, we confess, Paul says, is what? Is the mystery of godliness. We could stand and chant it for a couple hours, couldn't we? Like, I don't know about that, man. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. You think Artemis is great, who's not a god at all. You're making statues of her and her temple. Well, we confess, we, the church, of the living God, the living God's church, the household of faith, we say that the mystery of godliness is great. And to be clear, a mystery is something that was hidden in the past, but now has been revealed and made known. And how was the mystery of godliness revealed? Well, Paul tells us it was revealed by a person. Great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory. Who's the he here? That's one of them Sunday school questions. Everybody say Jesus, right? The mystery of godliness being like God, which is what godliness is. The mystery of godliness is revealed in Jesus. Jesus was foretold, foreshadowed, pointed to, and prophesied about all through the Old Testament. And then he came. He was revealed. Paul then goes on to give the specifics of how Jesus was revealed in the remainder of this verse. And it's glorious to behold He was first manifested in the flesh. Jesus is described as having been manifested in the flesh. Now the word manifested means to make manifest or visible or known what has been hidden or unknown. To manifest whether by words or deeds or in any other way. Well God manifested himself in the form of a person. Manifest means to make the invisible Visible. It's not creating something new. It's to make something already there appear or be made known. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about the invisible God and how we should ponder the greatness of the invisible God? Well, looky here. That invisible God became visible. Alistair Begg uses the language of those who helped define the incarnation. By saying, quote, he became what he had not been previously without losing what he had always been. Jesus became a person. But Jesus didn't stop being God when he became flesh. John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Sorry, Colts, it does not say a God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. The uncreated Word of God who created everything. And then in verse 14 of John 1, And the Word became flesh. There's our manifestation. And dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The invisible God became visible. He was manifested. The invisible God made himself visible in Jesus when he was manifested in the flesh. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. But that's not all. Paul then says that Jesus, this mystery of godliness, was what? Vindicated by the Spirit. Hmm. Now what's that mean? How was Jesus vindicated by the Spirit? I think we see our primary answer to that question in Romans 1, 3-4. Concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Net Bible, N-E-T, which is a great translation if you haven't invested in new English translation, Net He says this this way. says that Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit. The NIV says who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. All that being said, Jesus' resurrection here is seen as being done in accordance with and to the Spirit of God. And this resurrection of this dead Jesus who became alive again. And the declaration of Jesus being the Son of God in accordance with the Spirit was Jesus' vindication. It proved that everything that He had said was true about Himself and the plan of God. It was His vindication, His justification... This being raised from the dead proved that Jesus, after His manifestation in the flesh, after His death, was truly the Son of God. And we see that being done in, by, and through the Spirit of God. Thus He was vindicated by the Spirit. Shown to be the Son of God through the vindication, justification of the Spirit of God raising Him from the dead. And then Paul says he was seen by angels. The mystery of godliness was seen by angels, not just men. When was Jesus seen by angels? Well, from eternity past. The moment they were created, they were looking at Jesus. They they were seeing Jesus. And all through the story of Jesus' life here on earth, there were angels at his birth, right? Angels ministered to him after his fasting and temptation in the desert. Jesus said before His crucifixion that He could ask and His Father would send 10,000 angels or legions of angels. There were angels at the tomb after the resurrection. And angels even talked to the apostles after the ascension. So it seems like all through Jesus' earthly life, angels were involved. And those angels are God's ministers, God's servants to serve and to bless those whom God has sent. He was seen by angels all through His life. He's now, even now, being seen by angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. They circle His throne today and they cry, Holy, holy, holy. He was seen by angels all through His life from eternity past into eternity future, which just goes to show that in Jesus' life, Things were going on in the physical and the spiritual realm. And we know that through the gospel accounts that even the demons, the fallen angels, testified about who he was. You are the son of God. Please, if if you'll let me, can I go into these pigs? Sure, go into the pigs, that's fine. Okay, thank you, Lord. We're going to go kill these pigs now. So even the fallen angels seen Jesus, saw Jesus. He was seen by angels. And then Paul says Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. And Paul would have known something about this firsthand, right? Jesus had told his apostles to go into all the world to make disciples. He told them to preach the gospel to every creature. And at the time of Paul's writing to Timothy, that gospel had spread, even in that day, through the whole known world. Paul would get to the point in Romans where he says, I've got nowhere left to operate because everywhere has heard the message that I've got to proclaim. So I've got to go somewhere where he hasn't been heard. So I want to go to Spain or Tarshish. So this gospel of the living, dead, buried, resurrected, glorified Christ had been preached all over even the known world of that day. He was proclaimed among the nations, which led him to being finally believed on in the world. The proclamation of Jesus to the nations caused Him to be believed on in the world. Of all those who heard Jesus proclaimed, some actually believed in Him. Some put their trust in Him, relied on Him to save them and make them His. This Jesus, this manifest mystery of godliness, was believed on in the world through the miracle working of God. There's no other way to explain it. And following his earthly life, he was, in the last statement, Paul says, taken up in glory. Here we see that Jesus ascended after his earthly ministry was done. He was taken up in glory. We see this account in Acts 1, 9 to 11. And when he had said these things to his disciples, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men... Angels, by the way, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Again, there's those angels again, right? Jesus was lifted up as the apostles looked on and a cloud took him out of their sight. And the angel said that he was taken up from them into heaven, into glory. They also say that he would come in the same way as they had seen him go into heaven, which means his being taken up in glory was just a precursor to his coming back from heaven in glory to reign and rule forever. Oh, glorious day, right? So it's not just the fact that he ascended into heaven. It's that he ascended and one day he will descend as well. He was taken up into glory, not to stay there forever, but he was taken up into glory as a forecast that he's going to come in the same way that he was taken up. And the next time he comes, his home is with us forever. He sets up the new heavens, the new earth, and he reigns and rules forever upon the throne. And we will reign and rule with him forever because we are the church of the living God, the household of God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth who has held up and supported the truth of this glorious gospel through our whole existence. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And the mystery of godliness is Jesus Christ. He is the mystery, He is godliness. He is the mystery, and He is great indeed. When's the last time you saw somebody worship an Artemis of the Ephesians? (laughs) Great indeed. But great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in Great indeed. Now we just barely scratch the surface of this passage. <clears throat> but having scratched, now we sniff, right? Scratch and sniff, and so application. I don't know what that means. That I promise you this is a much new material as I'm hearing it for the first time too, so many times. So much here, so much here in these three verses. And really, the first verse, verse 14, is just Paul saying, Hey, I hope to come to you soon. So really, it's two verses. But it's two jam-packed, concentrated awesomeness verses. And we're going to turn our attention to application through three C's. C, the letter C. And that's not for cookie today. I hope that's good enough for you. The Christian, the church... And the Christ. Three application points. The Christian, the church, and the Christ. Which is really kind of easy to see in this passage, right? I mean, it's, right, this, this is like a preacher's dream. This passage is like, it, it automatically outlines itself. It's like the application points are just there. You don't have to search for those. The Christian, the church, and the Christ. First is the Christian. And remember, application is, what do we do with this? Okay, I heard some stuff. Whether you think it's good stuff, bad stuff, wonderful stuff. What am I supposed to do with this stuff? Well, the first application point is the Christian. Paul told Timothy that he wanted Timothy to know how he ought to behave in the household of God. Now we've also said that this thought is the main point of the whole book. Timothy, I want you to know how you should behave in the household of God. So, this application point then emphasizes the importance of one in the grand plan of God. Now, we can talk about the church universal and the great assembly of saints from eternity past into eternity future and the throng and the oneness of that great group of people. And what I want to say to you individually today Is that do you understand your importance as one in the plan of God? Do you understand your importance as one within the household of God? Just you. Not us. Not we. You. Well, nobody... Nobody even noticed if I'm not there. I don't do anything, and if I was gone, nobody nobody cared. They'd go on. Oh, we'd go on, but we'd care too. Look at the emphasis Paul put on Timothy. Not just here in this letter, not just in this passage today, but in his whole life. He said, "Well, Timothy was special." No, he wasn't. Timothy was a backwoods country bumpkin whose mom was a Jew and his dad was a Greek. And he was thrust into a major role in the plan of these early church assemblers. And if he hadn't done his job, God's will would not have been thwarted. But if he hadn't done his job, we don't have this letter. We don't have 2 Timothy. We don't have part of our Bible. How important are you in the plan of God? I would say today, vitally important. Individually, you people, you persons, are vital to the plan of God. Not me. Stop saying that. You. Each of you. Each of you in God's household is vital to the plan of God. Every single one of you. Dwight Moody is quoted as having said, The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. Man, what an attitude to have, right? God, I don't know what you have planned for me, but I want to be all in on that plan. I want to be that vital part of your plan that you've called me to be. And thank God we don't have to do it alone. We'll get to that in a second when we get to the church. And yet, we do have a part to play individually. Listen, and this is convicting as I say it, your prayer life matters. That blurry-eyed reading plan that you're working through in the morning, it matters! Your personal holiness matters immensely in the plan of God or He wouldn't have saved you. He wouldn't have placed you individually as a part of the body. I'm not here to worship you or ask you to worship me, but I am calling you to understand how vital you are as the Christian in the plan in the household of God. Paul would tell Timothy later in 2 Timothy, And what you have heard from me, one-on-one, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul received this revelation directly from Jesus himself. Paul was faithful to pass it on to Timothy. And he calls Timothy to pass it on to faithful men who will be able to teach others Also, And if I do my part, if Paul does his part, if Timothy does his part, if a faithful man does his part, this chain is unbreakable. It's unbreakable anyway. But mom, if you're faithful to teach your kids, husband, if you're faithful to teach your wife, Big brother, big sister, if you're faithful to teach your little brother, your little sister. Nobody can replace you in the plan of God. Again, 2 Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. As one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling. Oh, look at the focus. The word of truth. If I could say anything out of this individual call for the Christian,
0: please
1: master your Bible. Present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling day-to-day life, rightly handling all the challenges we have, sickness, disease, entropy, all these things take care of themselves if we master and rightly handle the word of truth. We, individually and we collectively, are the pillar and the buttress of that truth. You, pro- you guys that have read Tally Ho the Fox have seen this poem before. This poem was written during the great awakening of the 1700s by a man named Lawrence Tribble. The Trouble with Tribbles. Two of y'all got that one. But this poem is quoted in Tally Ho as well. One man awake awakens another. The second awakens his next door brother. The three awake can rouse a town by turning the whole place upside down. The many awake can cause such a fuss. It finally awakens the rest of us. One man up with a dawn in his eyes. Surely then... Multiplies. One. You, me. Individually. Wake up, church. And watch the multiplication that takes place because you were faithful. The Christian. Secondly, the church. Here, as the possessors, proclaimers, and protectors of the truth... Paul told Timothy that the church was the pillar and buttress of the truth. What are we as the church collective doing with the truth of God? Do we know what it is? Do we love it? Do we proclaim it? Listen, as the church, we have to be about God's truth. It's the one thing we must do. Not corporate strategies or growth mechanisms or bells or whistles. We <laughs> sound like a broken record. We must be about the Bible. Not the Bible as an academic book, but the Bible as a book to be lived out. The living God's living word lived through his living church. We have to be about the Bible. We have to be about the Word of God. We have to be about the Gospel. That is our fundamental, single, greatest priority. You poor, crazy people sit here and listen to me for an hour a week. Why? Not because I'm cool. Trust me, I'm not. But because I'm teaching and preaching the Bible. And that's what we've got to be about. That is our fundamental, single greatest priority. A famous West Virginian by the name of Nick Saban, love him or hate him, says this about the importance of the fundamentals: "quote It's about doing fundamental things well, not about gimmicks." Innovation is great, he says, but if you didn't execute with the last idea, what makes you think it will be different this time? In so many cases, execution trumps ingenuity. And ingenuity can even distract from what really matters. People are always looking for tips and tricks of the trade when they should be focusing on really learning the trade. End of quote. And church, providence, Bible, church... The Word is our trade. The Word is our goal. The Word is our mission. The Word is our fundamental. I tell people all the time when they ask me about church and what are you about, I say, this is my standard saying we have put all of our eggs into the Bible basket. And if that fails, we're doomed. Because that's the only thing we got. Well, don't y'all do this and that we do, and it's all based around the Bible. What we sing when we come to this table, when we meet on Wednesday nights, when we're communicating on the Facebook page, when we see each other, hopefully it's all about the Bible. Why? Because the Bible is the truth of God, and we are the pillar and the buttress of that truth. I'm thankful for your experience. I don't care about it that much, though. I do care about the Word. Well, yeah, but let me tell you about this neat thing that happened. Tell me about it. Okay. But that's not what we're putting our hope in. Our traditions or our history or our experiences, our hope is in the Word of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How are we going to be complete? How are we going to be equipped for every good work? It's through the Scriptures. So the church has to major in the Scriptures. This is what we should be about as the church as a whole. Engaging the Scripture to teach, reprove, correct, and train in righteousness. The Scripture to inform what we sing... That's the only way to ensure that God's people are complete, equipped for every good work, that they might hold up, that they might be these pillars, these buttresses of the truth. There is no church without the Word of God. And there is no way to apply the Word apart from the church. And this called-out assembly is the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And listen, I've used this before in application, and we've talked about it several times before, but I can't help but use it again. God's very purpose, listen to me, God's very purpose will be realized through this word-saturated church. Ephesians 3, 8-12. Paul says to me, funny to the Ephesians, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Look at that. God is going to make known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places His manifold wisdom. And the way that He does that is by holding up the church and all of creation, including the authorities, And rulers in the heavenly places are going to point to the church and praise and worship and honor God as all wise. That's your purpose, church. You're God's workmanship, His masterpiece that He holds up and says, look how wise I am. And I kind of feel the crush of that. It's like, look, I can even use these things the lowest, the most despised. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many wise, not many wealthy, but this treasure in these earthen vessels, God is going to hold up and all of creation is going to fall down in front of him and say, wow, God, you are incredible. And he's going to use the church to do that. God is brave indeed. So the Christian, the church, and now the Christ. You search the Scriptures, Jesus said, hoping to find what you should do, and it is they that testify about me. The Bible is so important because it teaches us who Jesus is, the Christ. Jesus is our message. The gospel is the story of how Jesus saves sinners And Jesus being the focus. They're not the sinners. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But Paul says to the Corinthians, But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The church is the body of... Christ. And we're being built up and working toward maturity up towards the head who is Christ. We talk a lot about, I don't know what to say when I'm preaching the gospel. Preach Jesus. Tell about Him. Again, your experience is valid, but it's not going to save a soul. Jesus is going to save people. So preach Christ and Him crucified. It's not complicated. Paul would tell the Corinthians later, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. All of this, all of this, the church, the individual, the church, the word, the gospel, the pillar, the buttress, the truth, it's all about Christ. So, you say, well, what's the application point? Preach Christ. I want to end where we began as we talked about. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And I just want to read this song that we sang earlier. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect Son of Man, in His living and His suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam, come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in Him we stand. Come, behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Come, behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain Him. Praise the Lord, He is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ, in power, resurrected, as we will be when He comes. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. And come and behold that mystery, church. The Christian, the church, the Christ. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. May we know how to conduct ourselves as His people, individually and collectively, in light of this great Christ, this great mystery of godliness That has been revealed to us. Let's pray. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended and took on flesh to ransom us. God, I'm not crazy enough. To think that everybody sitting in this room knows you personally. Hope they do. But God, would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, would you speak life to those dead in their sins this morning? Would you give new birth to dead people this morning, this afternoon? God, we are all sinners and we all deserve hell. But because of your grace, because of the great love with which you have loved us, you have sent your Son to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death upon a cross to pay the penalty for our many sins individually. And through that death, you take our sins away and give us the very righteousness of the perfect Christ who was resurrected, who did ascend, and who is seated at your right hand even now, making intercession for those who are his. God, would you cause people to have faith in that sacrifice this morning. May they confess their sins, their need for a Savior, and may they see Jesus Christ as that Savior and put their faith in him. And for those of us who do know you, God, may we be about this great mystery. May we immerse ourselves in the truth of your word, And may you be glorified as we individually and corporately, your church, do those things that hold up this beautiful, wonderful temple that you are forming us into. What a great calling you've given us, God. What a great God you are to help us fulfill that calling. We praise you and ask you to do what only you can do in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Great indeed, we confess, is this mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can. No, you're not.